0: So, first of all, it's a real joy to be uh, standing in front of you again. Uh, I've um, been uh, wrestling with some theological issues uh, the last year or so, and with with Matt's help, was able to to, to just regain confidence uh, to speak and and present myself for the Lord to use, and that's a privilege that you. Can't imagine, so uh, I just rejoice that I can do that again. Um, Before we jump in to the sermon today, let's come to the Lord in prayer. We'll need his help to understand his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love, for your um, sacrifice of your Son on the cross for us. As we open up your word to look at this very thing, we pray that you would speak through your word, that you would open our hearts to hear and listen, and that you would glorify your name, that you would give us hope through Jesus Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So, um, it's been an interesting week. Uh, myself, I have been glued to the the slash news and and other websites and things. Um, <clears throat> my my wife at the moment is in the Philippines, and um, just she had planned to go back to uh, take care of her mom for a bit, um, long before this happened. But uh, and she's fine. But um, as we look at what happened to the central Philippines, and the destruction there, it was uh, one of those real experiences of frustration and hopelessness. We, we looked and we saw the destruction, and if you know the territory and the country, you know how hard it is to get around. And you can, you can visualize the, the, the situation of people waiting for five, six, seven days for clean water and food and waiting for quite a bit longer for shelter. And we were sitting there, seeing all this, and there are things we could do, we could give, we could pray, but from a practical point of view, there was nothing we could do to change that situation. It's on the other side of the world, and... Um, There were only so many ships and uh, planes and helicopters and it seemed to be taking so long for uh, someone to get there to start helping. And we were just, we were helpless people watching hopeless people. And yet, um, that kind of situation isn't just the situation that people in disasters experience. If we look at our own lives, we will see moments when we too appear to be in a hopeless situation, when there is nothing else we can do. And so, um, although we can in no way understand here what the people in Samar and Leyte and Panay and all these islands across the Philippines have been going through the last few days. There may be some of us here who know because they've been there. But for most of us, we really don't have a sense of what's that like. But the truths that give us hope when we're in the hospital room, when we're in the funeral parlour, when we're in the family court, when we're in these places where we are hopeless, we feel hopeless. The truths that we can gain from the Bible about what Christ has done and can do for us and the fact that he is with us and the difference that makes apply everywhere, even in the zones of disaster. So let's look at a hopeless situation in the Bible um, and see what we can learn about hope was, how hope was found there. I'm going to open up to Luke chapter 23 and jump in at um, verse 32. So, if you've got a pew Bible, that would be uh, page 80, 884. And we're going to start reading from verse 32, and I'm going to read down to verse 38. But before I do, I need to give a little bit of context about this situation. So, i um, Our pastor, Matt, has been studying this book, the book of Luke, for a number of weeks. Um, And um, the point that he had come to in Luke was around chapter 10. I think he's just finished chapter 10. And at the end of chapter 9, we saw how Jesus reached a turning point in his ministry. He had been ministering in Galilee in the north of Palestine. And um, at a certain point, God made it clear to him what his mission was and that it was time for him to go from the north of Palestine in Galilee down to Jerusalem where the center of the opposition to his teaching was. And that when he went there, he would be killed. And that he would rise again. And so it says Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so the last few weeks we've been reading about this journey going from Galilee to Jerusalem. So I have skipped ahead, and I apologize to Matt for stealing his territory. Um, But uh, I wanted to, this is something I really wanted to talk about. And all of what the father had told Jesus has now transpired. He has been arrested. He has been put on trial by the Jewish authorities. He has been sent to the Roman authorities, Pilate, for another trial. And Pilate has signed off on his crucifixion. And so one Friday morning in the spring of the year, maybe A.D. 29. Jesus and two other criminals are led out of the city to the place called the skull. Um, And that's where we find them. Verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified him. And the criminals... and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots, in other words, they threw dice, um, to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. So I know you didn't come to church this morning to be depressed. Um, But be patient with me. It gets a little more depressing, but um, the end is good. the truth here is that all of us in our lives come into situations where we feel like this. In order to find hope in those situations, we have to look at um, what God has done in the midst of despair, in the midst of of hopelessness. Now, um, a couple of things come out from this passage. One is that Jesus forgives the soldiers who are nailing him to the cross. He takes a look at them and he says, these guys haven't a clue what they are actually doing. They don't know who I am. They don't know that they are nailing the creator of the universe to a cross. And he says to his father, Father, forgive them, they really don't know. That's his compassion, his love. The other thing that you see here is that everybody is attacking Jesus, insulting him, saying, um, come down from the cross. What is it that has them all riled up? What is it? What? If, if you were sin- standing there, you'd be thinking, oh boy, I'm just glad I'm not him. I, I really pity him. But they are not feeling it. What's got them going is Jesus claimed that he is the Messiah. And so they had a misunderstanding. For years and years and years, the um, Jewish teachers had said, the Messiah is coming and he will free us from the Romans. And he will, he will bring in a kingdom that will be just and fair and full of peace. And so, people were expecting the Messiah at at the time that Jesus was born. And Jesus said, I am the Messiah. He claimed even more than that. He said he was the Son of God. But they didn't understand that first, the Messiah had to suffer. If you look at Isaiah 53, you can see um, a description of how he had to suffer for us. And so everyone there is saying, come on, if you're the Messiah, if you're the, the, the freedom fighter, what are you doing on a cross? Get down from there and save us. But that's not Jesus' purpose. He had a deeper purpose. He wanted to save people from something deeper. And that's what kept him on the cross. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he had said to his father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Let me not have to go and do this. But no answer came. And he said, but your will be done. He was willing to go to the cross for you and I. Now, let's look at verses 39 to 43. One of the criminals who were hanged rallied at, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us is the same kind of thinking he's got. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due rewards of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, this is Christ speaking, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So, in verse 39, we see that the first criminal um, takes up the insults and and the cries of the crowd and says, you're supposed to be the Messiah, why don't you... Come down from the cross. And while you're at it, save us too. His focus was on this life. And he didn't get what the Messiah was about. Um, he could have been thinking different things. Maybe he is thinking some kind of savior you turned out to be. And that must have hurt. Uh, if that what he was saying? But he may have believed that Jesus really was the Messiah. But because he thought the Messiah would be a person of political and military action, he wants to push Jesus to finally um, do what he he thought he was supposed to do. He wants to control Jesus. He wants Jesus to operate on his terms. And sometimes we do that too. Sometimes we say, God, I disagree with your approach on this. You need to handle it this way. Now get at it. Or we say, I'll believe in you if only you'll do this. That's not the kind of faith that's saved. There is a belief that doesn't accept the sovereignty of our Lord. It may believe and be opposed or want to be in charge. But there was another criminal on on the cross. And while he was listening to this, something rose up within him. Something's not right here. He said, don't you fear God since you're under the same sentence? That's an interesting uh, phrase. What's he saying? I don't know exactly, but I think some of the possibilities are these. He might be saying, have you no god giving compassion that you insult someone who is dying just like you? Or he may be saying, are you that much of an idiot that you attack God's servant when you're about to face God? Maybe he's saying, don't you realize that this man on the cross between us is God? And you could argue which one of those things he's saying. But if you look at what this thief says later on, you can see that he was quite confident that Jesus on the cross there in front of him dying was indeed at least the Messiah of God, the promised one. And he comes to his defense because he has a better understanding of of what that messiahship is than all the people around. He may not completely understand all of who Jesus is, or he may, but he knows Jesus is righteous and worthy of submission and trust rather than insult. We see that um, or I get more on that later, but I want to look first at his next or at at one part of what he says. In verse 40, this thief on the cross emphasizes since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. The whole premise of what he is saying is you should be behaving differently because you're dying too. Did you know that that is also true of us? We are under the same sentence. As believers, we believe that Jesus will return one day. And there may be some of us still around when that happens. Those people won't experience death. All of the rest of us are going to die. So we are under the same sentence. Turn with me for a moment to Hebrews, chapter 9. Hebrews is back towards the back of the Bible, um, just next to James. Hebrews 9.27. It says, And it is appointed for man to die once. And after that comes the judgment. So, um, as Christians, we believe in one life, not multiple lives. You get to live once, and you die, and then you are judged for what you have done. Now, how does that... um, How will that judgment roll out? We don't think a lot about death in our culture. We have so much wealth, so much technology that we can try to push it away from us um, to a certain extent. But the reality is that um, it will always push through that. We see the suffering of people around us. We see uh, in our own family, we may have the experience of losing someone in our family. And the reality of death sort of smashes through all of our, our facade and uh, comes at us from time to time. So I think it's important that we face it, that we understand it, and that we prepare for it. So in order to prepare for it, we need to know what comes next. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. Oh, and for Rebecca... Or I think I probably hit point one. On our own, we have no hope. And actually, yeah, let's read through Revelation 20, uh, Revelation 20, and we'll go from 11 to 15. We don't often talk about this in church because it is so difficult to think about. But two important realities here that I want to cover. One, there is a judgment. Now, people, if you ask somebody on the street, are you going to heaven when you die? most likely their answer will be based on the idea that what they have done is probably good enough to get them into heaven. But we want to look carefully at that uh, idea this morning. Keep your finger there in Revelation and turn to Romans chapter 3, verse 20. You see, for the Jewish people, doing good and being good was all about keeping the law. You may remember a couple of weeks ago, Matt had a sermon about a teacher of the law who wanted to have eternal life, and he comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to have eternal life? Or, or yeah, and then Jesus says, what does the law say? And they they agree on what the criteria is in the law. Um, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love thy neighbor as thyself. But as soon as Jesus says that, the man realizes, Who is my neighbor? If I have to love all my neighbor, everybody, I can't do that. So when we look in Romans chapter 3, that's an illustration of what it's saying here. Romans chapter 3, verse 20, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. As the teacher of the law learned, and as you and I know, in our hearts, we all have sinned. Just a little further down, verse 23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now let's hop back to Revelation chapter 20. Did you notice what people are judged on? They are judged on what they've done. And do you notice how many were saved because of what they had done? zero. Everybody failed in the judgment of what they had done. The only people who were not cast into the lake of fire are those whose names were written in the book of life. And it's that that I want to talk about today. How can we Have our names written in the book of life? What had to happen so that we could have our names written in the book of life? Sorry for bouncing you around, but I'm going to do it again. Romans chapter 6. At the end of Romans chapter 6, you have this little summary verse that shed some light on what happened in that judgment. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We cannot be saved by what we do. We are all sinners. And the penalty for that sin is Is the lake of fire. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, how do we get it? That's where we go. We finally reach point number two. Point number one was on our own, we have no hope. We're sinners, we're separated from God and destined for hell. Point number two is that we are not alone. Jesus is with us. We may still be on our own, but we are not alone. We need to get to the point where we are not on our own anymore. So let's turn back to Luke 23 and look at how this happened. The two thieves on the cross were not alone. Jesus was right there between them. And the second thief is focused on Jesus. And he compares Jesus' situation to that of the two criminals. He says, but this man has done nothing wrong. He's already acknowledged his own sinfulness. He said that we are deserving of the punishment we've been given because we have sinned. He's acknowledged his sin." Now he acknowledges Christ's innocence. Now he goes a step further. Having said that Christ is innocent, he reaches out to Jesus. And he, says, and he said, in verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What's he saying? I think he's saying three things. Or even doing three things. He believes that neither he nor Jesus' lives will end when they die on the cross. Why else would he say, remember me? Remember me when? He is confident that the cross is not the end. And he's right. We've already seen that in Revelation. He believes that Jesus will have a kingdom. This implies he believes that Jesus will be the ruler of, In the life that is to come. We know that Jesus said, told us that he will be ruler in heaven and he will come back. So there will be a kingdom here on earth when he comes back too. The thief may or may not have known that. But he knows that where he is going, Jesus will be in charge. And three, he entrusts himself to Jesus to take care of him in that kingdom. He doesn't ask any specifics. He doesn't tell Jesus what to do. He just asks, remember me. He's throwing himself on Jesus' mercy. And putting his trust in Jesus. And what is Jesus' response to that thing? Today, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus gives him more than he asked for. He was asking for Jesus' general favor. But Jesus says, you will be with me. The implication is, you will be with me for eternity. Will you have to wait for the kingdom, for me to come back, set up a kingdom on earth, and I will remember you? No. Today, you will be with me in paradise. So, Jesus often gives us more than we ask for. And even in the midst of the most hopeless situation, Jesus knows our need, and when we come to him with that kind of trust, and submission. He gives us what is best for us. And this is the third point. Jesus is enough. No matter what the situation, Jesus is all that we need. So, how can Jesus do this? I want you to flip over to Romans chapter 3 again. We're going to read chapter 3, verse 21 to 26. We will come back to Luke 23. Because what it talks about in chapter 3, we will actually see Jesus do Chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For those there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. So there's another way. We cannot satisfy. God's justice by what we do, but there is another way. Through faith in what Jesus Christ has done for us, we can be saved. Jesus has done it for us. And what he has done is called in this section propitiation. And unless I had looked it up, I would not know what that means either. Um, Propitiation is the act of appeasing anger of another person. It is what Jesus did or what was done to him to satisfy God's anger for what you and I have done. I used to work in... um, jet engine test facilities and if you think about what comes out of the back of the jet engine especially when you turn on the afterburner it's quite something it's hot and so when you do that inside a building that could cause some severe damage so what they do is they have a big tube behind the jet engine and this fire goes into the tube And it draws along with it cold air. And the two mix. And so the tube does not melt. That's my best analogy for what happened to Christ on the cross. He took the fire. He took God's anger. He was separated from God. You'll see in Mark, when you read the same passage in Mark, Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God turned on him and turned the fire on him. Turned his anger on him. His wrath was poured out. We may never quite understand what that was like. But that's what Jesus was afraid of when he went into the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew that this was coming. If we look back at Luke 23... There is this long, silent period after the passage that we read today. Verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Three hours. Darkness. At the end of it, in Mark, Jesus said, My God, my God, why are you me?" Something happened there. God's wrath was poured out on Jesus' us. That's propitiation. Jesus took the pain punishment for us. So he has the right to forgive. And he forgave this sinner. He said, today you will be with me in the There's nothing more important in life than trusting in Jesus Christ and what he has done on the cross to save us from our sin, from that punishment. Romans 6.23 said, The free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. We have to accept the gift. The thief, The first thief on the cross was trying to control Jesus. He even believed that he was a messiah. He said, what are you doing there as a messiah? You should get down. But the other thief humbly said, Lord, remember. We need to accept Christ and trust in what he has done just as that thief did. I trust in you. Save me. I'm yours. We need to acknowledge that Christ is the king And give ourselves to him. Those two things. Trusting in what he has done on the cross to pay for our sins. Trusting him to save us. And acknowledging that he has the right to kingship of our lives. That is what saving things. Have you done it? How is your preparation for the judgment coming? We will all be there one day. Jesus told his disciples, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. When Mary sat listening to Jesus and Martha complained, Jesus said, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is done. Come to Jesus. Give your life to Him. Trust in His perfect payment for your sin. Do it today. You may not have tomorrow. What does this mean? If we have accepted Christ. If we have given our life to him. We still have hopeless situations. We have dreadful experiences in life at times. Our brothers and sisters who know Christ are searching for water and food in the village. We do what we can, but there's limits to what we can do from so far away. The rest is in Christ's And no matter what situation you're in, Christ is indeed enough. He sees things from the perspective of eternity, and he has promised that he will take care of us from an eternal perspective if we have trusted in him. Romans chapter 8. We'll finish with this. I don't want to detract from the importance of trusting Christ as your Savior. So what I'm about to read, I want to remind you, applies only to those who have trusted in him. But it's important to know that in Christ we have everything we need. Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say to these things? Who is at the right hand of God and who is interceding, indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Let's take a little pause there. There's a a paradox. This passage is saying that we are perfectly safe in God's hand. That God won't hold anything back from us that is good for us. And yet it's saying, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. This was happening in the Roman Empire. No, in all these things, in spite of this, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. On an eternal scale, viewed from eternity, though we suffer, God is doing the best for us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So in Christ, we have all that we need to go through the valley of the shadow of death, to go beyond it, to deal with whatever comes along, Jesus actually is enough. When we close, I'm going to stay up here. And if you want to talk about how to receive Christ, how to trust, put your trust in him, I'm here. I may grab a couple of other Deacons and and senior women in the church that want to talk uh, are ready to talk um, to explain more about the way of salvation. So if you want to talk, we will be here. That's close.